You're listening to Crossroads International Church Podcast. Welcome. We hope this podcast will bless you from wherever you're listening to it. For more information, go to our website at xrgs.nl. Now, let's get into the podcast. So friends, I, I, I mentioned to you earlier that we have some very special guests with us this morning, and I'd like to just quickly introduce them and then hand over straight to Paul. So uh, some of you will know, many of you will not, so I'm going to say again just quickly, the very first uh, Bible college that I went to, uh, straight out of school, so this is more than 30 years ago now, uh, Paul and Carol were the principals of founding principles of. So we have known, uh, Catherine and I have known Paul and Carol for over 30 years now. Talk about God's faithfulness, right? Um, In fact, um, so do with this what you want, but I mentioned last time and I'll mention it again, so do with this information what you will, Uh, but Paul was the one that taught me how to preach initially. So, you know, I'm just... You know, if there's somebody to blame, I'm, I'm just saying. So, <laughs> or somebody to say thank you to. Um, uh, Paul today is the principal of Trinity College in the States. Paul's going to come up and he's going to share uh, what God has laid on his heart with us. God bless you. Thank you, Paul, Carol, Ava, for visiting us. And uh, we pray God's blessing on you. It's a real joy to be back here today. It is true that about three years ago, we got to preach, and a few Sundays later, corona broke out all around the world. I can claim credit for a lot of things, but that's just a little bit beyond me as to uh, creating some kind of global pandemic. I hope that I've had more of an impact on Pastor Paul and his preaching And uh, if he does well, give me the credit. If he doesn't, please talk to him. He needs to get his act together. But it's a real joy to be with you. I'm with Carol, my wife, and we have our granddaughter, Ava. And some of you might even have remembered as uh, we came three years ago with a team of students, uh, might have recognized a couple of faces there. Right now, students from our college and graduate school are literally all over the world. We've just had a team arrive in Estonia and in South Korea. There's a team in Honduras and Dominican Republic and one arriving tomorrow into Wales. Uh, We've got a team right down in the southern part of the United States. There's a Nepalese team, a Philippine team. There's a big group that's been in Thailand, a large group right now in Israel. So we literally are scattered across the planet and all for one reason, to bring the good news of Jesus to those who really need to hear it. And that's what we get up for in the morning. That's what we live for. We passionately believe that Jesus Christ changes lives, and we want to be part of that for the rest of our days. So it's just special to be with you. Love to see what's going on in Crossroads. We follow from time to time what's taking place, and just rejoice with you in every single way. So thank you for the privilege of being with you. It's always a joy to be with Paul and Catherine, and uh, we realize why Paul is a man of such grace the more we get to know Catherine, but uh, we... uh, We love her very dearly and their kids too. So I want to speak to you today about a passage in the Bible that even if you don't have much of a church background, you might have heard the story or be familiar with it. It's found in the book of Luke, which is one of the four good news stories that is recorded, a historical part of the New Testament. And the doctor Luke records how Jesus went to the city of Jericho. 
Jericho to this day is the lowest inhabited part of the planet. That's really saying something when you're in the Netherlands to find something just a little bit lower than even where you live. And Jericho's right down at the end of the Jordan River as it empties into the Dead Sea. Jesus visited there, as far as we know, about three times. And on this particular occasion, as was so often the case in Jesus' life, people were crowding around. There would have been camels and donkeys. There would have been all the classical Middle Eastern smells and noises. And the crowd were looking to Jesus. And it says in Luke chapter 19 that he entered Jericho and passing through. And in verse 2, a man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. And very pertinently, the Bible says he was a tax collector, in fact, a chief tax collector, and was wealthy. Seems to go together, chief tax collector and wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was because he was short, and he, ran, and he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter. Every generation of human beings has had its mutterers. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. One of the most quoted little verses of the Bible. I want to show you a photograph of a very dear friend of mine. His name is Chris Carey. Allow me for just a few moments to tell you about Chris. We started elementary or primary school together. We were in the very first day of our very first class at school, and we went all the way through those first seven years of school. I would like to say that at least 50% of all the trouble I ever got into was directly Chris's fault. He was just one of those kind of kids. I don't think he ever brushed his hair. He was always late for school. He was always just about ready to catch the bus or was late for the bus. He would arrive into the classroom panting from running, and, uh, but he was fun, and he was just a delight to be around. I remember once he got into the classroom, he looked at me, he said, Paul, I've got a bottle of Coke in my backpack. I said, wow, for little boys, that was just like a super treat. He said, it was my sister's party yesterday, and I sneaked it away. If you carry it after this class, we were going down to swimming lessons, he said, he'll share it with me. So I was all for this, and I remember we had like elasticized belts, so I sneaked sneaked that bottle in there, and I covered it over, and we were walking away. It had been shaken so long and so hard with Chris running towards the bus and catching the bus and running off, and unknown, it slipped out from my belt and literally exploded on the sidewalk, and a great shard of glass went into my leg there, just missed my femoral artery, and I remember the teacher fainted, and everybody didn't know what to do, but that's the sort of stuff that Chris got me into, and I had very little to do with it, but that was our schooling. At the end of primary school, Chris went off to boarding school. It was quite uh, the done thing in those days. And we didn't see each other for a whole year. After that year, Chris invited me to church. Let me run ahead of the story and come back to that moment. Chris 
was going away on holiday with his parents. His father was a medical doctor. He was in his third year of medical school, so this is now several years later. His father fell asleep behind the wheel, rolled the car, and Chris came out of that accident as a paraplegic. A number of years later, he married, and they tragically lost their child in a swimming pool drowning. Uh, multiple years later, another one of their children got an incredibly lucrative contract to go to Iraq in the cleanup after the war, had earned enough money to come home and buy a house, and literally five to ten minutes outside of Baghdad airport, their vehicle was taken out by a roadside bomb, and Chris buried a second child, and then went on to serve in places like the Okavango swamps as a, as a, as a doctor, and about 18 months ago, my friend Chris Carey went to be with Jesus, and I honor him for the place that he had in my life. But let me get back to where we met towards the end of, uh, towards the beginning of our high school career. He came back into my life, and I remember there was something different, something distinctly different about him. And he did what good Christ followers should do. He told me what had happened in his life. He had come to know Jesus as his Lord and Savior. And then he did the next best thing. And he said, would you come to church with me? Well, I had nothing else to do that Sunday night and wasn't all that far away from my home. And so I remember quickly agreeing. And so Chris Carey met me at church. It was quite a large church. There was a balcony at the back. And we made our way up into the balcony. I'd never been in a church like that before. It was vibrant. They were clapping hands. They were enjoying themselves. The preacher preached in a very charismatic sort of a way. And then he did something that I'd also never seen before. He said, I want you all to close your eyes and bow your heads as he got to the end of his sermon, and he said this, if you would like to give your life to Jesus for the very first time, many of you are familiar with what goes on at this time in a service, he said, I want you to do just one thing, one thing. He said, I would like you, under the courage of your convictions, to slip your hand up into the air, and I'll see that hand, and I will pray for you. Well, I'm 13, going on 14. I'm not so sure that I really know what's going on or that I really want to do this. And I'm pondering whether to put my hand up or not. And the next thing, I feel this wrist, this hand come out, grab my wrist, and bang, straight up in the air. My friend Chris Carey had got my hand in the air. Of course, the preacher was onto it like this. I see that hand, and I'm looking at my hand. It's not even me raising it. It's Chris doing it. And I'm wondering, is this really me? And the preachers acknowledged it. And then the preacher did another thing that made me a little bit uncomfortable, just to let you know this happens all over the world, but he said, if you put up your hand, I want you to come down to the front and I'll meet you. I thought, no way, I'm not doing that. And then I felt this hand like this, and the next thing, my friend Chris Carey is dragging me right down, and he's waving as he's going down the church, so he's just got the best convert the church has had for a very long time. He's as proud as could be, and I get to the front, and the preacher says some things, and I'm looking around saying, I didn't put my hand up. It wasn't even me that came on down to the front. This is all my friend Chris Carey. And then the scariest thing of all, it was kind of verging on weird. The preacher said, I like you to go into this room on the side. I'm thinking, now this is really getting bad. I could die there, and nobody would even know about it. And uh, we, we shouldn't do weird in church too much. But anyway, they did it. And so I remember going in. There was a very nice fellow in there, and he showed me a little bit of the Bible and read a few texts to me. And then he said, let's pray. And we prayed, and I kept one eye open just in case. 
And I remember at the end, he patted me on the back. He said, God bless you. You are now a Christ follower. May the Lord go with you for the rest of your days. And I walked out still not really sure exactly what I had done, but something started to change my life. And the rest is history. That was well over 50 years ago. And I love Jesus more now than I ever have before. And I know that my life was transformed beginning with that event all those years ago. And my friend, Chris Carey. Why do I tell you all of that? Why do I share that story? Well, in the context of the passage that I've read to you, there's a very real sense in what the sycamore tree was to Zacchaeus. Chris Carey was to me. Just as though Zacchaeus was able to encounter Jesus because there was a strategically placed tree that he was able to climb into and see Jesus, well, in exactly the same way, Chris Carey became to me a facilitator of my journey to Jesus. He became my sycamore tree, and as those thoughts started to tumble through my mind, I came to this conclusion that every single city needs a sycamore tree. Every single community needs a sycamore tree. In fact, all of us as individuals need a sycamore tree in our lives. What Zacchaeus had that day, we need as well. What our community needs is a community that becomes a sycamore tree to them in order to experience the goodness and grace of Jesus. Let me explain it a little bit more. You see, friends, a sycamore tree in the case of Zacchaeus and in all other cases is a safe place for the outcast. As you read the text, it doesn't take you long through the things that Luke tells us to be reminded that Zacchaeus was, in fact, an outcast. He was a wealthy man, but he was a tax collector. If you know anything about tax collectors back in the first century, you will know that they were considered absolute sellouts. These were people that had colluded with the colonial power, with the overlords that had illegitimate sway in the nation. They had become people who were untrue to their own nation, and not only did they receive tax on behalf of these colonial overlords, but they creamed a little bit extra off for themselves, and they were hated intensely. And not only was Zacchaeus a tax collector, he was a chief tax collector. So you can be sure of this without any doubt that Zacchaeus was not a welcome part of the community that he had probably grown up in all of his life. Wealthy maybe, but an outcast in every sense of the word. And he hears that Jesus is coming to town. I don't know what was calling in the depth of his being, but I'm sure there was something in the loneliness of this man who said, I've got to see Jesus. I've got to hear what this good news is all about. And running around the crowd, perhaps a little bit afraid of an elbow here or there or not being welcome at all amongst his own people, he cry, climbs up into the safe branches of a spreading sycamore tree. And he's able to be held there safely in order to encounter Jesus. In fact, that's pretty much what we do every time we gather as a community of Christ-following people. Let me challenge you today. One of the primary reasons we're here, friends, is not just for ourselves, but it's to create safe place. It's to make strong declarations that people count. People in whatever state of life, 
whatever part of their journey, however they are going through the pilgrimage of this life, this side of heaven, we gather here today and we declare, like that sycamore tree gathered Zacchaeus in its branches, we declare this is a safe place. This is a place where we value life. We value people. We value important things. We build a value system that is intrinsically whole and noble and biblical and that brings wholesomeness to people's lives and restores marriages and brokenness and in every way becomes a safe place. And I call on you. I'm just a visitor. I'm only here for a day. But please hear my heart, friends. One of the reasons God's attached you and added you to this local church is to be somebody who becomes a custodian of goodness and wholesomeness and righteousness and deep, deep biblical values that value people and value boys and value girls and value men and value women and value people. Let's be a safe place. I remember I was a very young pastor, and our church had explosive growth, but almost exclusively amongst young people. And I remember so clearly praying that God would begin to add some nice families to our church because they would help in every way, including hopefully the financial stability of the church. But still we grew with young people. And I remember one day, it was a Sunday morning, and the church was filling up, and down to my left-hand side, I noticed a wonderful young couple, just beautiful husband, wife, and their two children dressed up for church. And I thought, those are exactly the kind of people that I'd love in my church. Oh, Lord, please let this be a really good service. Let it impress them so that they'll join our church. That's just a little window into kind of what goes on in pastors' heads sometimes. And so I was giving them a particularly warm sort of smile from the platform. And uh, it was a rainy day, and our church was not in the best part of town. And we had a lot of people who were sometimes after a Saturday night filled with the wrong kind of spirit. And, uh, and especially on rainy, cold days, they would seek shelter in the church. And it was so embarrassing. It was terribly embarrassing. And I was praying that this would not be a day when one of those would come to church. And I'm about halfway through my sermon, and who do I see coming through the door but one of the worst of them? And it's very clear that he's completely inebriated. He's making too much noise. He says amen and hallelujah in all the wrong places. And I'm hoping that our deacons will sort him out and get him out of the place and that this family won't even see that he had been there. And yet he stayed in and our good deacons did nothing and I'm getting aggravated. And, and I start this kind of dialogue with heaven, also something that happens in preachers' minds. And I start saying to God, I'm preaching away like this, but I'm saying to God, no altar call today. I'm not giving any invitation for anybody to give their life to Jesus. Do you know why? Because those people are always the first to respond, you know, and they've done it. 50 times already, so I didn't want to do it again, and I didn't want this family to be offended. Well, you don't have those conversations with the Almighty and hope to win. There's just no way, and so God reminds me, no, this is my service. This is my church. These are my people. You will have an altar call. I said, not today, Lord. Please, no altar call today. God says, you will have an altar call, and I'm not enjoying my day at all. I'm hoping this family will be nice. I'm really mad with this guy, and I'm not enjoying my conversation with God, and um, so I remember getting to the end, and I said, okay, God, if you insist, 
It's going to be the hardest, stinkiest altar call I've ever given in my life. So I got to the front. I said, no, we're not going to close our eyes. You know, none of that stuff. We're not going to have music playing, making you feel good. We won't do any. If you are a dirty, rotten sinner and you've got to get your life right with God, we're all going to watch you as you get out of your seat under the courage of your convictions and you come to the front and we're all going to know what's wrong with you and where you've been and what's been. And I'm thinking that's enough to put off any anybody coming to the front, you know, nobody's going to do it. Please understand, I was 23 years old, <clears throat> and I did not teach Paul and Catherine how to do this. Uh, and uh, so I get, guess what? He gets straight up out of the back seat. I think, oh no, Lord. I smile at this nice family. Now I wish we had all closed our eyes, you know, but anyway, it was too late. And uh, he sort of made his way down the middle, backwards and forwards, and, uh, and I'm dying on the inside, and I, I, I've got no grace at all. I stand, I said, what are you doing here? <laughs> he says, well, I want to give my life to Jesus. That's what I just asked him to do. I said, by the look of it, you need to. And, uh, and so I, I'm giving the poor guy a real hard time. I'm a young, enthusiastic pastor, just learning along the way. And then I said, so if you're really sincere, you'll say this prayer after me. And uh, so he gets, to, he gets up, he nods his head. I said, dear Lord Jesus, he says, dear Lord Jesus, he just splutters it out. I'm a really dirty, rotten sinner, Lord. He says, I'm a really dirty, rotten sinner. And I keep this prayer going, and then I get to the point where I say, I give you my life to be Lord and Savior. And a miracle happened. I'll never forget it with my own eyes, and I certainly needed it. I saw God not only save a man, but sober him in an instant. His eyes brightened up. He was completely articulate. He stood for, by the time I said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen, he said, in the name of the Lord Jesus, amen, perfectly. That nice family never did join our church. But Peter did, and he became one of the most faithful servants our church ever had over the years to come. He worked out that there were at least 26 alcohol outlets between where he lived and where our church was. In those days, he got out a map, and he wrote on the map a pathway to avoid every one of those so that he didn't have to walk past one and be tempted on his way to church. And he walked almost twice as far as he needed to, but he got to church, and he became a faithful and upright and committed member because God had given him a safe place. And God changed my heart as well. You see, everybody needs a safe place. And in my view, friends, there's no safer place than the community of God's people who, like a sycamore tree, spread their arms and welcome the outcast. I pray that's true for your church. I really do. Here's another thing that I've discovered about the sycamore tree is it's a place from where we see Jesus. That's exactly what happened. We know that he was a short man, so he couldn't push through the crowd to see Jesus. So Zacchaeus obviously needed a certain amount of 
of advantage in order to be able to see across the crowd. He probably was a little bit nervous going into the middle of the crowd because he was already so unpopular. So he did a very inventive thing, and he climbed up into the sycamore tree, and from that vantage point, he was able to look across the crowd, and he got to see Jesus. And I thought, that's exactly what Chris helped me do. He got me out of the routine of my life. He got me into a place where I could literally look across the crowd and for the first time in my life see Jesus in all his beauty and his wonder and his splendor and his glory. For Jesus is beautiful and Jesus is wonderful and Jesus is merciful and Jesus is kind and Jesus still changes people's lives today. And that's exactly what, uh, what Zacchaeus was able to do because of the sycamore tree. And I thought that's what we should be. That's what our church should be. That's what our community should be. Actually, friends, everything we do and say ultimately should have this underlying reason and cause. We want people to see Jesus. We want them to see him in all of his beauty. Not us, not what we do, not how we perform, not all the things that we think are special, but we do things in such a humble, godly way that people are left in no doubt at all that our purpose in life is to see Jesus and help others do that. This week in the life of our college, where we now have graduate students in well over 20 nations around the world, people studying at master's level and PhD level, but we close everything down. We stop the class. The educators get a headache. They don't know how it's done, but we do it. And we scatter our students literally in semester time for credit all across the earth. Why? Because, friends, everything else is secondary to people manifesting the love of Jesus on this planet. What's a good degree and a great education if you don't have a capacity to touch people's lives and to reach out to them and show the goodness of our eternal and amazing God. Are you with me on that one? I took a team of students just like that some years ago back to where we used to be, the Bible college where Paul and Catherine were with us. We went out into a little community because we'd become very actively involved in assisting particularly HIV AIDS orphans at the time. We created some small villages and we were providing home-based AIDS care and a lot of care to these young people. And I remember we arrived, it was sort of classically African, so you kick the dirt and you ask how the goats are and uh, you check out how other things are going and you get through at least 10 minutes of absolutely no purposeful conversation whatsoever. And then eventually you try and get down to the business and I remember us saying to the leaders, is there anything we can do to help you today? And they looked around and... Um, no, we don't think so. We don't think there's anything you can do. I'm thinking, I brought students all across the earth. I don't want them here just saying we can't do anything. And then one had a great idea. They said, you know what? There's a family just over there pointed at a very basic little house. They've built a little lean-to on the back just out of cinder block and corrugated iron. And they said they've taken in a 12-year-old who's lost her parents to AIDS. And uh, it's a very basic room. It's got windows, but no glass in the windows. It's just got raw uh, timber and the corrugated iron. It might be nice if you could find a way to paint it. We said, that's a great idea. We'll do that. So there was a hardware store not all that far away. We all climbed in the vehicle. We went down. We said to the guy, have you got any paint on sale? 
we're just poor students and we want to try and buy what we can. He said, no. And then he said, I do. He said, just a minute. He came out with a five-gallon drum and he said, you know, somebody ordered this paint and they never came back for it. I'll give it to you at cost. We said, done. We bought the paint. We took it back. We <laughs> cranked off that lid. And it was only then that we realized why the man hadn't gone back to fetch it. Uh, because it was the brightest canary red, uh, yellow you've ever seen. It was bright. So I said, we've got to get this done. So we got the brushes. You know what students are. They paint on the wall. They write their names. They paint each other. Just It's the same all over the world. And um, later on, I said, guys, we've got to get this done. The little girl's coming home. And so they painted like crazy. We got the roof done. We got the walls done. And um, somebody had even been able to find a bit of bedding for her bed. So by the time she came home, it was like the ultimate reveal on TV. And we all went out through the house and we waited. She was pretty intimidated by all these kids coming in, uh, uh, these students outside. And, but anyway, we welcomed her. We said, we've got something to show you. We went back through the house. And I'll never forget that 12-year-old. She stood at the door and her eyes just looked all around and you could see tears spike in the corners and start to roll. And she couldn't even find a voice. She just said, for me? Is this for me? And our students were all, yeah, it's for you. And then we suddenly realized that through the most basic of tasks, we had given a little girl an opportunity not just for dignity, not just for a nicer environment, but to see Jesus. That's why we do what we do. That's exactly why you give. It's why you give clothing. It's why you do community events. Why, friends? Because we live with a passion that the world would see Jesus and we build a sycamore tree. And I've got one last thought. The sycamore tree that we establish as a part of a community or as individuals or as families, it's also a place from which Jesus can invite people to dinner. Do you remember what Jesus did? He went over. It wasn't a request. It was pretty much a command. He said, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for dinner. Some of you might be old enough to remember little Sunday school songs that we used to sing. Coming to your house for tea. Must have been arranged in England, that song. And um, Jesus went home, and that day salvation came to that house because Zacchaeus made everything right that had been wrong because Jesus created community in the household of he who was a sinner. And Jesus hasn't stopped that work. If you don't fully understand the work of the church of the Lord Jesus and the gathering of a community like this, let me share it with you, friends. It's because we absolutely, passionately believe in the power of community. We need each other. We need to be involved. We need to be committed. I've got to the point, I'm old enough now to say these things, that I don't understand it when people live in some kind of outer orbit around the life of the church. It's not good for you. It's not good for your children or your children's children. You were created and hardwired for community, to be involved, to volunteer, to get committed, to turn up early, to stay late, to stack chairs. It's not a task. It's not a burden. It's a privilege and pleasure to be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. It really is. And he discovered, Zacchaeus discovered that day that Jesus invited him for dinner and a community was established. 
Many years ago, my father was the director of a large construction company, and they had a cafeteria at work, and he put out some bids for people to do the catering, and eventually, the person who won the bid was a Greek confectioner, and uh, so he catered for all the hundreds of people, but uh, every Thursday, as a token of gratitude, he would bring a decadent cake and put it on my dad's desk to say thank you. Uh, sort of rich, you know, German black forest cake with cherries and chocolate and oozing cream and, you know, artery blocking everything. And, um, and uh, I remember there were three of us boys in the house. My dad would bring it home. And the first day, it hardly landed on the table. It was gone. It was wonderful. The next week, we enjoyed it. About the third week, we wondered if the man could bake anything else. And about the sixth week into it, not even the dog would eat it. And um, we just got tired of the same stuff all the time. And I remember seeing this beautiful cake one day sitting on our kitchen table. Nobody was touching it. And I had now become a new Christ follower. I was attending a church that my parents didn't know much about. Uh, in fact, they were quite skeptical of my newfound faith. But I remember bravely speaking up as a 14-year-old, hey, Mom and Dad, do you think I could take that to my pastor? And I remember you could almost see the thinking, the kids won't eat it, the dog won't eat it. Yeah, take it to the pastor, that's it. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, my dad even offered to drive me, which was so how desperate he was to get rid of that cake. And uh, so I held that cake carefully on my lap. And as we're driving across town, this uh, couple lived in a high-rise in a small uh, apartment, and I remember saying, you know, I've seen my pastor at church. I think the world of him, he's just a great guy, but I've never actually had a conversation with him, and then my 14-year-old brain started to shut down. How, what do you say to a pastor? How do you speak to a pastor? Do you, do you? And I, I'm getting more and more nervous as I get near. I get into the, the lift going up. I press the 14th floor. Up I go, and I'm really nervous now as a 14-year-old. I find the number. I knock on the door. I open the door. I said, here, and I throw the thing across the doorway, and I took off, and he caught the cake. And um, we never had a conversation until probably about five years later, we were uh, now in Bible college in England, and this couple became dear friends, and they cared for us, and we would go on long, long walks together. And I remember one day, we're on a walk, and this uh, pastor turns, he says, Paul, I said, yep. He says, Paul, I said, yep. Paul, I said, what is it? He said, do you remember the cake? <laughs> I had forgotten the cake. I said, cake. He said, yeah, the one you threw at me across the door. I didn't tell him about the dog or anything like that, you know. And um, I said, oh, yeah. And then tears sprung to his eyes. And he said, I'm still in ministry today because of that cake. I said, never. He said, true. He said, we'd had a really bad experience in church just that weekend. We were both professionally trained in other areas and we put that cake down on the rickety little coffee table. It rocked backwards and forwards. The cake was so heavy. And we had just been planning to leave ministry and to go into our professions. And it was all too disillusioning and discouraging. And then here's this decadent cake. And every part of it spoke to us about the goodness of God. We put our hands on our hearts and held hands across the table. We said, Lord, we commit ourselves for the rest of our days to serve you and serve your people. And it was just a cake. But it's amazing what happens when you invite people home to dinner or when you have a coffee or you gather as a community and Jesus is there because Jesus says, I'm coming to your home for dinner. Please be a sycamore tree to your community. 
Let those spreading branches embrace the neediest and those that need care. And may God be honored in this community. Give me the privilege of prayer. Lord, I commit my friends to you. I thank you for the gathering of a great community of Christ-following people. And I pray that you would help us to be a sycamore tree in this area, this locality, and even across the city and the nation. I pray that for Crossroads Church today. And on each individual, I ask your blessing and kindness and grace in Jesus' name. Been such a joy being with you. God bless you all. Thank you. Thank you for listening, and we hope that you have a wonderful week. See you next time.